Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Trevor Killip, uh, the pastor here at Hope. If you are new or visiting, I'm glad you could be here. Please go ahead and fill out the comment card and let us know how we could pray for you, answer any questions that you might have about who we are here, how we do ministry here, and uh, what we are about. Just to give you guys a heads up, uh, we are streaming live on Facebook uh, through the phone back there. So that's a new thing. You will be able to rewatch the service if you want to. Um, you know that we already have the sermons online via audio, but this way for people who are at home right now or people who are away, they can view the service um, as you are hearing it as well. And right now we're just doing the sermon part, not the uh, music part. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace for us to be here today. Thank you for the sun rising anew on another day. Thank you for reminding us that your mercies are new every day. Be with us as we go into your word this morning. Help us learn what we need to learn, hear what we need to hear. May your spirit convict us, teach us, rebuke us, encourage us, remind us of the good news. As we go to your word this morning, Father, may we find the gospel there. May we find your glory there. May we glorify you as we humbly respond in obedience to it. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today our text is Matthew 23, and that is the entire chapter, verses 1 through 39. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles scattered throughout underneath the seats. If you use a pew Bible, in most of them, it's page 700. So this is the fifth discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. And depending on how you count the discourses in Matthew, it's five of six or it's the fifth of five. Uh, If you separate the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25, which we will start next week as a separate discourse, then this is the fifth discourse. For review... Uh, The other discourses that we have covered in the Gospel of Matthew, the first one was the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5 and 7, the commissioning of the 12 in chapter 10, parables of the kingdom in chapter 13, and chapter 18 contained teaching on how kingdom citizens are to live and act in response to the gospel in this world. We're going to see this morning how Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the religious leaders to the crowds. If you remember, the religious leaders in chapters 22 has been confronting Jesus, challenging his authority, examining him, and Jesus has been doing well and has responded to to their questions and has silenced them. And now he's going to call them out on their hypocrisy rather explicitly. And he does so first by telling it to the crowds, and then he goes to the false leaders themselves and tells them specifically what they're doing wrong. And then at the end of all this, he is going to expose his heart, his very own heart, as he laments over the condition of these men. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 12, and then we're going to work through 13 through 36. And when we do that part, we're going to go a few verses at a time. So be sure to keep your Bible open, one, two, follow along. Plus, you can keep me in check to make sure I'm not making things up. And then after that, after we cover the section on the seven woes, we will conclude with 37 and 39, 37 through 39. So Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ." The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So here, Jesus, you know, the very first verse, it tells us he's talking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he's calling out the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking about the hypocrisy that they exhibit. But when we read it, especially verses 2 and 3 and 4, it's kind of confusing. He says, listen to them. They sit on the seat of Moses, and in seat of Moses, it's just a position of, of authority. Typically, the teacher or the rabbi would actually be sitting down when they instruct and when they taught. And, and so to sit on the seat of Moses is to be in a position of authority and, and respect. He's saying, listen to them because that's where they sit, but don't do as they do. And you might be thinking, well, that's a little confusing, isn't it? You want us to listen to them, but not do as they do. And if you pay attention to the Gospel of Matthew, like in 12, Jesus says, he calls them out on their teaching, the flaws of the teaching, how, how what they've been teaching, how they've been tying up heavy burdens on them, and how people shouldn't be doing it. So what's going on here? Well, this is ironic sarcasm. See, yes, they do sit in a seat of authority, and you think that you would listen to them, but clearly, because they don't practice what they preach, don't do it. He's using sarcasm to get a point across that they are hypocrites, that they are false teachers. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They put heavy burdens on others that they themselves are unwilling to lift. It's one thing if you, if you handle a text of Scripture, and it, it is heavy, but if you call for other people to lift that burden, but you yourself don't, you're a hypocrite. And that's what he's saying. These, these Pharisees, these teachers, that's exactly what they do because ultimately they care more about the opinion of people than they do about the opinion of God. They love to be seen and heard. They do this by what they wear. They have their phylacteries, uh, which were small leather or, or parchment boxes that they would wear, and, and they just love to dress to impress They would go around in their attire, and just because of what they were wearing, they would expect compliments and respect and authority to be uh, respected and obeyed, and they love to show them off. And And we see this today. Pastors often are guilty of this. Except they kind of do it the other way sometimes. They, they love to dress down. Rather than to dress up their sermons in truth, they love to wear tanks and ripped jeans to connect with the crowd because it's, it's relatable. And so they intentionally dress down. But sometimes pastors love to dress up as well. They love to put on the suit. They love to put on the coat hoping that people will overlook their horrible teaching and lack of scripture because at least they look the part. 
Now, of course, this is not a blanket statement. Not every pastor that dresses up or dresses down is guilty of this. And those who, of us who are in between, we don't have in-between sermons. Not all of us. Every pastor must be measured and weighed appropriately. Just as Jesus here, he's not condemning every religious leader in Israel. He's talking about a specific group, yes, but he's not condemning every single one. So let's be cautious there. But those who are clearly hypocrites ought to be denoted as such and treated as such. So main point there, look beyond the appearance, actually test what's being taught, test how they walk. Just don't assume that because they sit in a position of authority that they, they deserve that authority, that they should be followed, that they should be listened to. These hypocrites value where they sit and how they greet. Constantly seeking approval they, and praise and respect from others, they'll spend more energy and time on the frivolous things, such as elaborate greetings or drawn-out prayers full of words but no substance, rather than teaching God's people the things of God and rather than shepherding the sheep of God. It's like pastors who seem to spend more time on a list or series of jokes at the start of a, of a sermon to warm up the crowd rather than clearly and plainly teaching the truth of Scripture. And again, it's, it's not that you cannot do that. You can. But it better be done effectively and it better have a point. It better not take away from the Word of God. Because many of those who do, do because what follows is either not palatable or not edifying. I'm not here, no pastor, no teacher of God's word is here to entertain or to tickle ears. We are here to proclaim the truth. It's not that we can be void of humor or void of stories. But if humor and stories do exist, it must help enhance the glorification, the proclamation of God's word. These Pharisees, they don't rebuke, they don't correct one another. Because, again, they desire the approval of each other and the respect that comes with it. So they love to sit in the seat of honor at other people's feasts. They, they love that posi- position. And because they do these things, they neglect their faithfulness to steward God's word appropriately. As a shepherd, as a teacher, as your pastor, it's my responsibility to call out and to correct and to confront other teachers who may have a negative influence over the sheep that God has bestowed to me. This, this is a stewardship responsibility for me. But it's a correction that's rooted in the word and a desire to see all of y'all, including myself, to mature to completeness, to be more like Christ. I say that because many pastors, many leaders sometimes, rather than correct out within the word of God, they correct out of a fear, an insecurity. They fear that this negative influence of this other pastor will just take the sheep away. That's my concern. It's not that. My concern is for you to be mature and to be grounded in the word of God. Religious teachers love their titles. They love to be called rabbi. They love to be called teacher, instructor, or even father because by it they demand respect. They demand approval. They insist you obey them without question. Now, Jesus makes it clear this isn't how it should be, for we all have one Father, and he's not saying that you can't call anyone Father here on earth. That's not what he's saying, or can't call anyone teacher or instructor. The point is, what he's saying is, don't, don't take somebody who has that title as the ultimate authority, because ultimately, we all have one Father, and that's God in heaven. 
That's the ultimate authority. Because in the first century, if you had a, a rabbi or a teacher who was a prominent influence in your life, who you deeply respected, it wouldn't be unheard of for you to say, call him father because of the influence that person had. That's what Jesus is appealing to. Don't allow that one person to have more authority than the one father that we all have in heaven. So he's not saying we can, cannot have those titles, but we need to be careful when we do that. Because ultimately, again, we all have one authority, and he speaks to us through his word. And as such, when we seek out these positions, it's not so that we can get approval. It's not so that we can sit in places of honor. It's not so that people can like us and respect us and obey us. It's so that we can serve. Just as Jesus came to serve and not to be served, we likewise must be seeking when we are in positions of teaching and instructing and pastoring and leading that we are serving God's people and not seeking to be served. This is an issue within the American church today about pastors who expect unwavering submission to their teaching. Even elders are are guilty of this, of supporting it and enabling it, especially when it's abusive. Churches have a responsibility to call out abusive pastors and leaders. Elder boards have a responsibility to to hold their pastors accountable. Congregations have a responsibility to hold their leaders accountable. Jesus rebukes any kind of behavior that is used to abuse his sheep for selfish gain. Example, the way that some churches handle sex abuse allegations by treating their pastors and their staff as if they're golden calves and they can't be touched. And they try to hush it up or they blame the victim rather than treating it appropriately and acknowledging that there's an issue with the pastor, with the staff member, with the elder. It's like the health and wealth prosperity gospel that claims if if you get sick or you get cancer, well, it's because you're talking bad about their leaders and that you have bad faith in them, thus God has cursed you. Or Bethel Church and their school of supernatural ministry with the Apostle Bill Johnson who founded the New Apostolic Reformation who says that God has appointed him apostle and he is the new apostle and there's a new apostolic age upon us. Therefore, he has the authority to teach outside of scripture and you can't correct or rebuke him with scripture because he is an apostle. That's a great, very specific present day example of what Jesus is calling out here. But even in the free church, we have issues with this. We, have, we are not immune to this. We have, in our very denomination, we have issues of this. Once was an emotionally abusive pastor who often lied, said inappropriate things to the women and young girls of the congregation. And the elder board, despite numerous complaints from the congregation, just would respond with, don't touch the Lord's anointed. That's a bad understanding of the Old Testament text that's talking about King Saul, who was, was the Lord's anointed, who was by God, by a prophet, was picked out, was the Lord's anointed. Pastors today do not fill that role, especially in the free church. This pastor, to include myself, since we're not the Lord's anointed, you can correct us, rebuke us, and remove us from our position of authority, especially if we abuse it. We don't cast lots. We conduct a, a, a process to find, a, hopefully, the right candidate for the job. But in that process, it's, it's, the process is imperfect, done by imperfect people using incomplete data. And then the congregation, which is full of 
imperfect people are voting on incomplete data. Hopefully, by God's will and in the leading of the Spirit, we'll find the right person. Therefore, whoever comes to fill this position, they're not untouchable. You didn't cast lots. If you cast lots or if you had a prophet from God, that would be a totally different story. But that's not how it works. So mistakes can happen. You can hire the wrong person. So pastors, teachers can be and are expected to be held accountable. We do not get free reign to do as they see fit. And I'll be honest, there are days when I, I want free reign. But then I submit myself to Christ and realize it wouldn't be good for myself or anyone else for that matter. So if the pastor, the leader, the elder, even deacons, if they're not submitting to Christ and his word, and if their lives don't reflect that, they should go. They should go. Just because they sit in a position of authority does not mean they belong there. But Jesus doesn't stop here. So he's been addressing the crowd and the disciples so far. But now he's going to go after the leaders themselves. And he's going to talk about the false teaching. And he's going to expose these false teaching with seven woes in verses 13 through 36. And we're going to move through these relatively quickly because each of these woes, they're pretty specific. They're not all that abstract. So we're just going to explain one and move on. But you might be wondering, well, what is a woe exactly? What do we mean when Jesus or any of the prophets says, whoa, what does that mean? It's not like Joey on that 90s show when he says, whoa, this is a different kind of woe. A, a woe is an expression of lament that, that's rooted in like a painful displeasure about the reality of things. Uh, it's one way of describing it. It doesn't mean judgment, but often most often, actually, in, the, in Scripture and how Jesus used it here, it's often related to a pending judgment, judgment that's about to happen. So you, it, it's, it's woeful to be in this state because of what's going to happen or what is happening. So verses 13 through 15, righteousness in work sends people to hell. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he comes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So a proselyte is a, is a, is a convert, somebody who you convert somebody to your belief system. And he's saying you shut the kingdom of heaven. I Meaning if you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, they're not getting in. And then if you convert somebody based off that premise, they are twice a child of hell, meaning they're going to go to hell, but they're even more damned because they think they're not. So they believe in a righteousness that's rooted in works. And we've briefly talked about this elsewhere in Matthew, but when we talk about righteousness and works and how it sends people to hell, this teaching is perhaps the most prolific teaching within the church because we all want something tangible, right? Faith is, is messy, it's hope that's unseen, and, and we like the assurance that if I do A, B, and C, I'll get to D. You like to have that checklist. So that the legalism, it, it, that tension is always there, and perhaps that's why it's so common. We see this with sacraments, both in the Protestant church and in the Catholic church. Sacraments are not means of saving grace. Today we're going to do a communion. Partaking in communion is not going to save your soul. Faith in Christ alone saves your soul. You do a communion in response to that reality. So no sacrament is going to save you or keep you from hell. Nor do doing miracles. 
being able to laugh in the spirit as Bethel requires a believer to do. If you don't laugh in the spirit, it's probably because you're not saved or at best, you're an incredibly immature, unhealthy believer because you need to be able to laugh in the spirit. You don't need to be doing that or speaking in tongues or performing miracles to be saved. Jesus tells us in Matthew, a generation that seeks for a sign, the only sign they get is the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. That's the only miracle needed. And just because you lead others to a false Christ and you have a following doesn't mean God's behind it. Right? Jesus just said that. You're, these proselytes, these converts, they themselves are going to go to hell along with you. So just because there's a movement going, do not think that God is behind it. It must be measured. It must be weighed according to Scripture. Your trust must ultimately be in Christ, not the Pope, not the sacraments, not miracles, and especially not your feelings. And whether or not you experience the Holy Spirit joy with laughter. Verses 16 through 22, they make pointless distinctions. Woe to you, blind guides, who say... If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. See, they're saying that what you swear upon matters, but what Jesus is saying is like, no, these are pointless distinctions. See, it doesn't matter how how you word something or what you put your oath upon, that isn't what validates the oath. The temple, the gold, the altar, the gift, they all point to God. So why are we making pointless distinctions? God makes them, all of them, sacred. This is similar, as we kind of talked about last week, saying that the letters of Paul and the Gospels are different, or that the Old Testament and New Testament are different. That's a pointless distinction. It all comes from God. All were written by a person. Even Jesus himself didn't write any of the words of Scripture by his human hands. So let us be careful to be mindful of pointless distinctions that might exist within our lives and within the church. But in order to know that, you must know the word so you can discern well. Verse 23, 24 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected all the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. They obey the law, but they do so with no heart. See, the issue here isn't the tithing. The issue isn't that they are doing these things, but they do so at the sacrifice of the weightier matters of the law. They go to great lengths and efforts to make sure everything is tithed, but they ignore justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
And, and as we keep coming back to in Matthew, it is always about our hearts. And the heart of the law is, hangs on those two commandments we talked about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You neglect these two, which the entire law hangs off of, the law falls apart. But these two laws, the entire law depends on. It's what prevents us from going into legalism. 25, 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is perhaps one of the more straightforward ones, I think easy ones for us to understand. The religious practices, they seem godly, but their hearts were anything but. Again, they're obeying the law without the heart of the law. This is similar. Remember when we talked about the fig tree and the judgment when Jesus came into the temple and threw people out, and we talked about how the fig tree was fruitful in appearance, but it didn't have any fruit. Fruitful in appearance, like the temple, like Jerusalem should was, but it was spiritually barren. This is the religious hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. Like the health and wealth prosperity gospel that sounds and looks good, but doesn't stand the test of time or the teaching of scripture or the new apostolic reformation. It sounds great. It seems true. But closer and closer you get, more and more of the light and truth seems to shrink and greater the darkness and the lies become. And if you're grounded in the word, you can pick up these things sooner rather than later. So we have to be mindful of religious hypocrisy. This is why, this is how they are able to sit on the seat of Moses and get the approval of others. They teach heavy things, but they themselves don't carry the burden. And finally, 29 through 36, they are guilty of murdering God's sent ones. Jesus continues with the final woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." There's much in here. But ultimately, Jesus calls it as he sees it. See, he condemns them for being guilty of killing all those God sent to them. They say like what we often say, well, I wouldn't eat the fruit off the tree. 
if I was back there. They were saying the same thing. I wouldn't have killed the prophets if I was back there. But Jesus said, no, you would have. And you're the descendants of these. And the blood is on your hands. And, and it, all these Jews, the Israel, has been guilty of killing from Abel. Remember Abel, brother of Cain, the first person murdered? Jesus starts with him, and he ends with the last prophet in the Old Testament, Zechariah. He gives him the whole Old Testament says, you're guilty of this. Every one of these prophets who have been killed, stoned, persecuted, is on you. So he calls it as he sees it. And then he gives them a prophecy as well. Those who are to come in the weeks to follow the resurrection, they themselves will be persecuted, starting with Stephen's death in Acts 7 when he gets stoned. And Paul, who chases the Christians, who chases this new belief from town to town. Jesus prophesies of it in here as well. But yet, despite them being murderers, despite them being hypocrites, which which he uses multiple times in this passage, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. And he also tells them that because of the hypocrisy, they're going to hell, which is another teaching for us that hell does exist. It's real, and that's where you go if you don't believe in Jesus Christ. But despite this, and despite their clear rebellious nature against God and his prophets and the people that God sends to him, Jesus still desires their repentance. And as such, in doing so, I mean, this is partly why he's calling them out in their sin. He doesn't ignore it. He just doesn't leave them. He calls them out. He's challenging them. We must do the same, especially those who teach blindly and falsely, because it's not only they themselves who are going to hell, but they of which they are leading are also going to hell. So pastors and elders have to identify false teachers, one for the sake of the flock and for the sake of the elect as well. So however impassioned Jesus might have been in his condemnation, he's not cold-hearted about it. And we see this in verses 37 through 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So here, the heart of Jesus is exposed. I mean, he just condemned the Pharisees and these teachers harshly, honestly, truthfully, but now he's exposing his desire for them to repent, how he's yearned for Jerusalem to respond to them. We see this with the, with the double title there of, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's, that's an emphatic way of, of lamenting. And in Luke's account of this, Luke tells us this is, this is one of the times in the gospel that Jesus weeps. He wept over Jerusalem. And he acknowledges their guilt. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush or water down their sin. He calls it as it is. He says, you killed the prophets. You stoned the people I sent to you. But he still weeps for them. And even now, they reject him, the Son of God. Jesus reminds him of his patience, of the patience of God. He longed to call them his to protect them. And notice how he says that. 
uh, he's, he longed to call him his. He says, I have gathered your children together as hand gathers of word. Uh, where is it? How often would I have gathered you together? See, he's talking about God's people. He's, there is a reference to his divinity, that he is God, the son of God, and he can do that. And he has longed for them. He has sent prophets to them to repent. But the time is up, at least for the city of Jerusalem. Destruction is coming, and Jesus now will leave the temple area, just as the presence of God did in Ezekiel 10 when the Spirit of God was fed up with the idolatry and the spiritual adultery of Israel, and it left the presence of the temple. Jesus now leaves the temple, and the presence of God won't be in the temple anymore. Later, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed, something that Jesus speaks more explicitly about in chapter 24, which we will uh, talk about next week. The severity of which Jesus condemns false teaching and unbelief should give us pause, and it should even cause us to tremble at the thought of acting rebelliously against God. But at the same time, Jesus demonstrates and expresses his desire and his pain that he is willing to endure in order for us to repent. He's willing to wait, but sooner or later, time will be up. Likewise, we must do the same with others. We must be patient, but not without rebuke or correction. It's easy to rebuke and correct. Yes, and we should. We ought to do that. But we must do that with the heart of Jesus, full of grace, full of patience, weeping if we must. We've got to make sure that we, like Jesus, are full of grace and truth. And we're not going to do that perfectly, but we must strive to do that perfectly. We must identify the hypocrisy that exists first in our own lives, right? We must remove the speck in our eyes first before we, we remove the log in our brother's eyes, right? And it's not that we don't remove the log at all. We do us first, and then we do our brothers. Because if the speck is in our eyes, then we can't see clearly the log in our brother's. So we must seek to correct and rebuke. It's one of the ways we use Scripture. It's why we're part of a church. It's why we do life groups. It's why we get to know one another. Because we need people keeping us accountable. We need that correction. It is not loving to ignore the hypocrisy and the sins in our lives. We have to enter into this messy fray of gospel love in accordance to the teachings of Christ. And as we do so, we must understand that no one here is above the other. Yes, we have elders and we have deacons and we do have uh, a church hierarchy and, 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 and I'm the pastor, but we all submit ourselves to the authority and teachings of Christ. If anyone steps outside of that, they are open to church discipline and correction and rebuke by a brother or sister in Christ. The only way we are able to do this is if we rest in the work of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And, and this is the gospel. Recognizing that his life, his death, his resurrection is where we find our peace. It's where we find our reconcil- reconciliation with the Father that allows us to stop striving and stop worrying about if we are good enough. Because it's at the cross that we realize we're not good enough. We don't cut. We don't cut it. We don't make it. We, we don't hit that standard. 
Nobody here is good enough. Only Christ is. God the Father did not send his son to take on human flesh, to live his life of obedience, to die in humiliation on a cross because only some of us weren't good enough. But it's because all of us weren't good enough, starting with Adam who once walked with God himself. So his, in God's good grace, he has allowed us to be found acceptable before himself on account of the advocate that we have in Jesus Christ by his blood. And this is what we celebrate when we come together to do communion, which we do now this morning. And when we do communion, we don't do it because we, we don't participate in communion thinking, this is going to wash my sins away. The blood of Christ washes your sins away and has washed your sins away if you're a believer. We don't do this thinking, this is going to allow me to sin the rest of the week. We do this to be reminded of what Christ has done and that he is returning as we anticipate eating at the table with him in the kingdom. Thus, we want to live in a way that is acceptable, that's not hypocritical, so that we can enjoy that feast, so that the kingdom of heaven isn't shut in our faces, and so that we can also be edified to lead others in the truth that's not hypocritical. We must not think that we all may do hypocritical things from time to time, but a good believer, one who is faithful, does not live a life of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a willful knowledge that you are, you say one thing, but you're willfully going against it. Not ignorantly, but willfully. That's what these Pharisees were doing. They knew what they were doing was wrong, but they chose to do it anyway. We as believers, we're not called to a life of hypocrisy. That's, that's part of the, the good news is that we can be free from that. We acknowledge our sin. Yes, we are sinners. Yes. But because you're a sinner doesn't make you a hypocrite. Hypocrite is a form of sin. But just because you're a sinner doesn't mean you have to keep on sinning. Jesus is clear. Paul is clear. John, Peter, the word of God is clear that once this Holy Spirit's in you, you're a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. You have been crucified with Christ. It's Christ who now lives in you. You continue on in righteousness. And you confess the sins. If you don't confess those sins, if you don't repent of those sins, then you're a hypocrite. So keep that in mind. And when we do communion, we're reminded of that good news. And as we're reminded of the good news, it's a challenge to live before God and others the way that he calls us to live. Not as hypocrite, but as faithful people who confess their sins and strive to walk in righteousness. So at this time, we're going to enter into a communion. If I could have uh, the elders come up for this. If you are a believer in Christ, you may partake. You do not have to be a member of our church uh, to partake of communion here. You just have to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, all of them, on the cross, and that it is finished and it is complete. And I'll give you a moment before we pass the elements that you will, uh, well, after we pass the elements, I'll do it before. Before we pass the elements, before I bless it, I'll allow you all to have a moment of silent prayer on your own. Confess your sins to God. Ask him, ask the spirit to come inside of you, to convict you of the sins, to open up to any hypocrisy that might be in you, to allow him to use the body, other brothers and sisters in Christ, to come into your life, to correct you, to rebuke you, and for you to have the, the strength. Because it's not easy to be correct and rebuked. It hurts. 
My wife corrects and rebukes me almost daily. But I'm grateful for it because it sanctifies me. Discipline is not without pain. So ask God that he'll give you the heart to endure and to see the love that exists in that. And also for the ability, the integrity to live it out. Because as you partake in communion, just as when we are baptized, we make a statement of faith before the body, when you partake in the elements, you're reminding others in the congregation, you're a believer, and you submit to the teachings of Christ, and you want to be held accountable to his word. So think of that as you partake. And if you're not a believer, or if there's something bothering your heart that's making you feel guilty or whatnot, and your conscience isn't clean before God, pass the plate. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians not to bring judgment upon ourselves in doing so. Pass the plate. It's better for you to pass the plate than partake of it like a hypocrite. Pass it. And if you have kids here or, or, and they're not believers, have them pass the plate too. All right? It's a sacred thing that we have here. So go ahead and, and pray, and then I'll close this in prayer as I bless the elements, and then we'll pass them. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for this moment. It is easy to hear your son rebuke other people. It's easy to look at people who are tripping and falling, who aren't doing it right, and who are false teachers. But let us not be blind with the issues in our own lives. Help us be open to correction and rebuke by your word. Help us go to your word. Help us submit to your word and, and, and to o- obey it. Let us be willing to be edified by it. Help us to submit to you fully and wholly. Help us not be led astray by the ways of society, the culture of the world. Help our emotions to stay in check and help us use your word as the boundaries for that. You know our sins. There are many, but your grace is more. And you are a holy God, and we ask for forgiveness for our transgressions, our sins, and our rebellious spirits. Continue to, gra- to create in us, Father, new hearts, pure hearts, where we may live righteous lives by the blood of your Son. Help us walk up rightly in that truth of the gospel that the work of your Son is completed It is enough. It is finished for all of our sins. Let that compel us to continue to walk in obedience. Help us to walk in the light, to have fellowship with you, to know the light, and help us to know your teachings so that we can obey your word and keep your words, and your words may abide, dwell, remain within us so that your love may as well. And help us be a light to those in the darkness. Be with those who are mourning today, those who may be struggling with depression, maybe those who are exhausted because they have been weighed down with heavy burdens. Take them off, Father. Help all of us realize that the yoke is light, the burden is easy. Help us come to you, help us trust in you in all things. 
forgive myself and, and any of the leaders in this church, teachers who have, might have misspoke or taught things that aren't appropriate. We seek forgiveness, Father. We seek correction and rebuke. Continue to grow us in your truth. No one here before you, Father, is, is free from that. We submit the entire church to you, Father, so that we could be used by you to reach West Salem and those who are lost and those whom you would desire to be part of your church. Be with us as we pass these elements, the bread and the cup. May our hearts be clean, Father. May we confess our sins to you. May you forgive us for them. And may we not only confess, but let us know that truth. That once we confess, you are faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to help us walk in righteousness. That once we confess, it is done, it is over. We don't need to be lingering or continuing looking in the past at our mistakes, but we can look forward in the light at what's ahead and the reality of who we are in your Son. We thank you that we have another moment, another Sunday, to celebrate communion with you as we are reminded of what your Son has done and as we are reminded as we anxiously anticipate the return of your Son when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and that this way, the ways of the world will be, will be done with and the new ways will come for all eternity, Father. It's this hope that we celebrate. It's the gospel that we, we, that we celebrate, that we take joy in, Father. We ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.